The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. United Nations replaced the ineffective League of Nations. So the UN was established on October 24, 1945, at the end of World War II. One of the attempts to prevent another world war. And has existed since then, since 1945. At the founding of the United Nations, the U.N. had 51 member states. Today, there's 193. Get this. The headquarters of the U.N. is in Manhattan, New York. Manhattan, New York. Some of you know that. Some of you may have not have known that. So when the U.N. gets together with all the representatives and they have meetings and they talk business and they propose resolutions and they make votes, usually that happens in New York, here in America. And the Americans are not in charge of that meeting. We're just one of the 193 members, and they usually have a representative who oversees the United Nations, and typically it's someone not from the United States. That's where they meet. So that's the United Nations, um, trying to maintain international peace and security, promoting human rights, fostering social and economic development, et cetera, et cetera. That's the United Nations. Well, if you're paying attention all to the United Nations, they're not really fulfilling that goal. As a matter of fact, the United Nations are, for the most part, are united together in their hatred of Israel. That's just the way it is today. You can just do, even CNN produced an article recently within the last two months, I think it was in December, where it just showed that the over the last few years of the 96 resolutions proposed to the UN in New York, of, of, of the 90, 80 of them, were condemnations of the nation of Israel. That's the business they're about. And that's typical. And this also happened recently. Uh, in early December, the UN General Assembly got together. Hundred and Almost 193 of the nation's heads got together, the UN. A resolution was proposed. They voted on it. The U.N. General Assembly voted overwhelmingly to, and here it was, to disavow Israeli ties to Jerusalem. There it is. This was after the President of the United States said Israel needs to be, or Jerusalem needs to be recognized as the capital of Israel. And then the world just went crazy. And within two weeks, the United Nations get together and they propose a resolution to condemn what the U.S. President just said. In a formal resolution, the U.N. General Assembly voted overwhelmingly to disavow Israeli ties to Jerusalem as part of six anti-Israel resolutions that it approved on that day in New York. The vote was 151 in favor, condemning Israel and the notion that Jerusalem is the capital of Israel. Six voted against that, United States being one of the six, Israel being one of the six. That means four other countries. Nine countries abstained, cowards. That's what that means. The resolution came as uh, the U.S. administration was rumored to be actively considering relocating its embassy to Jerusalem. Then it goes on. Uh, in New York, only six countries out of 193 U.N. member states fully supported Israel's ties to Jerusalem. They were Canada, Marshall Islands, never heard of them, Micronesia, Nauru, and the U.S. and Israel itself. The nine countries who abstained were Australia, Cameroon, Central African Republic, Honduras, Panama, Papua New Guinea, Paraguay, South Sudan, and Togo. The rest voted to condemn Israel, saying, no, Jerusalem, 
uh, is not the capital of Israel. And here's what the resolution said. The resolution stated by the UN says, quote, any actions taken by Israel, the occupying power, that's technical for is the Jews don't belong there. It's not their land. It never has been their land. They are there wrongfully, illegitimately. They have displaced people who belong there. They need to get out, kicked into the Mediterranean Sea. That's what that means. The occupying power. So Israel, they're nothing but the occupying power. Uh, so the resolution stated, any actions taken by Israel, the occupying power, to impose its laws, jurisdiction, and administration of the holy city of Jerusalem are illegal and therefore null and void and have no validity whatsoever. So says the United Nations and 151 nations of the world, plus those nine, which up to 160 nations in the world, categorically condemning Israel. In other words, they hate Israel. Clear. Wow, why why is this? Why does the United States like Israel? Why has the United States been the greatest advocate of Israel in Israel's modern-day existence? Why is that true even today with the current administration? Well, it's clear from Scripture. There will be those who hate Israel. There will be those who love Israel. In the Old Testament, God made it clear that he loved Israel with an abiding, everlasting, continual love. Here's just a couple of verses to show how uh, God created Israel. through he, he elected Abram to make him a great nation. And he said in Genesis 12, we saw it when God called Abram, who was a pagan idol worshiper for 75 years of his life. He didn't deserve the love of God. He didn't earn the love of God. But God elected him and put his favor and love upon him by grace. And God promised Abraham, I will make you a nation. No, I will make you a great nation. And those who bless you, I will bless. And those who curse you, I will curse. That was a promise of ongoing, continual conflict between the nation of Israel, their descendants, the Jews, the Israelites, and those who oppose them. And it's true today. And it's been true all throughout history. Yet God's view of Israel has never changed. Just some verses. First Kings 10.9 says, quote, the Lord loved Israel forever. Forever. Second Chronicles 9.8, quote, your God loved Israel, establishing them Forever. God promised here in Second Chronicles 9, 8. I loved Israel. I created Israel. I established Israel. And I have established Israel forever. Israel will continue to exist all throughout history, even unto eternity. And that's been true. It's been 4,000 years. Plenty of nations have come and gone and gone into total non-existence. Uh, the future of the United States of America is not guaranteed. We could go into, as a nation, non-existence. Uh, Hosea 3.1, quote, the Lord loves, this is present tense, the Lord loves the sons of Israel. The Lord loves the sons of Abraham. The Lord loves the Jews. That's what that means. The Lord, Yahweh, his personal name, that's what it says. Yahweh loves the Jews. Even, get this, even though they turn to other gods. Wow, that is the unconditional commitment that God has to his special people, the Jews. Well, why, why does God have this? Why are they so special? Did they, did they deserve it? Did they do something deserving? Were they unique from all other nations? Why did God put his love upon them? And, and God makes it clear at the very beginning, in the days of Moses, when he gave them the law. And he said up front, Deuteronomy chapter 7, here's why God chose Israel. Here's why God chose Abraham or the Jews, apart from all other nations. 
It actually had nothing to do with them inherently. They weren't more better than any other people or nations. Uh, verse 7, the Lord or Yahweh, this is God's personal name, his covenant name. Uh, the Lord did not set his love on you, Israel, the Jews, sons of Abraham. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples or the nations, for you were fewest among all people. In other words, you were insignificant. Well, why did he choose to love them? But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers. <laughs> what, what that means is God decided to love the Jews because God decided to love the Jews. It was his choice. It was his prerogative. He independently, sovereignly made that decision. In other words, they were like an elect nation by God's sovereign choice. Because the Lord loved you, kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers. The Lord brought you out by a mighty hand. He redeemed you from Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God who keeps his covenant. It's an eternal one with Israel and his loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love him and keep his commandments. So God's love for Israel is perpetual. What is God's attitude towards the Jews and Israel today? He loves them. He is committed to them and he will fulfill all of his promises he made to them. That is the clear teaching of the Bible. And the promise, and I mentioned this last week, Genesis 12 still stands. When God told Abraham, I will make you a great nation. I will give you many descendants. I will give you so many descendants. They will be more than the stars of the sky and the sand of the sea. And those who love you, I will love, or those who bless you, I will bless. And those who curse you, I will curse. That's been the story of history. And it is a reality today. So with that great love of God, let's look at why and what peoples actually despise and hate Israel. All throughout history and even today and just going back to the premise is why do why does the whole world for the most part hate israel it's because god loves israel and those who hate god it just makes sense they would also hate those that god loves and that's israel and also because those who hate truth hate israel there's other reasons involved but those are clear jesus by the way was a jew jesus was jewish jesus started the christian church And because and Jesus was the Savior, Jesus was God, Jesus was God in the flesh, but he was born through a Jewish mom, Jewish lineage, Jewish religion, Jewish town, Jewish home, Jewish country, under the Jewish law, Jewish everything, Jewish circumcision, completely Jewish. But he was the Savior of the world. And uh, during his ministry, Jesus said this, just before he got crucified and established a church, he was talking to his disciples who loved him, followed him, and he said, John 7, 7, the world hates me. The world, there are people today who hate Jesus Christ. They can't even stand listening to his name. Or they only say it as a swear word. And it's not a superficial reason. It's in the heart. It's because of sin. It's because of pride. It's because of animosity and hatred towards God the creator. They also hate the Savior. And Jesus was clear about that. The world hates you. That will never change. There will always be people who hate me with the uttermost hatred and animosity, even to the point of bloodshed and death. And that's been true all throughout history. For the last 2,000 years, it's even true today as Christians are being slaughtered all over the world. The world hates me. And then he went on to say in John 15, 19, to his disciples who truly knew him and followed him. And this is also true of us. If you know Jesus Christ, if you love Jesus Christ, this is true of you. A promise from Jesus. He said, the world hates you. John 15, 19. The world hates you. The world is the unbelieving world. The world is... Um, the world that rejects the truth of the gospel. The world is are those who are not Christians and deliberately so. They have a settled 
informed disdain for Jesus Christ, who he is and what he stands for. So this hatred and animosity is real. Jesus even talked about that. That's why it is so dangerous for uh, people, especially Christians, to have a very naive attitude about the world and anthropology and homardiology and uh, social sciences that with this view that, well, you know, people aren't bad. People are good. By nature, people are good. People are born in the world good. People are born neutral. And people become bad. Why do people become bad? Well, because society made them bad. Their parents made them bad. Their teachers made them bad. Their coaches made them bad. What they watched on television made them bad. So they were conditioned to be bad. They weren't bad inherently. That's wrong. Totally contrary to the Bible. Scripture is clear about that. It's in the human heart is where it originates and starts. And that's why Jesus said in John chapter 8 to those who hated him and wanted to kill him, he said, you are, and he said this publicly, with crowds during a feast day. Hundreds, if not thousands of people heard him as he proclaimed at the top of his voice to his critics who wanted to kill him. He said, you are of your father, the devil. Wow. These were people who were experts on the Old Testament scriptures. You're of your father, the devil. That is your origin. You are his offspring. That's a fulfillment, by the way, of Genesis 3.15. And you act accordingly because Satan, the devil, was a murderer and a liar from the beginning. So Jesus diagnosed them because he was the God man. And he was exposing what the issue was. It was their heart. This is why people hate the Jews. It's a spiritual issue. And it's an issue of the heart. So let's go ahead and look at these six categories, culminating in number six, of the people historically who have hated Israel and why they do so. Uh, the first enemies of Israel that we're confronted with in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 9, and it's the Canaanites. The Canaanites is a people, the sons of Ham. They, hate, they hated Israel from the very beginning. Uh, I already talked about how Noah had three sons, uh, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And they got off the ark after a year and ten days. And there was Noah, his three sons, and all their wives, eight people, got off the ark. And then God said, be fruitful and multiply. And they began to do that, the eight of them. And they probably produced hundreds and hundreds of offspring, which eventually became the nations of the world. And in Genesis chapter 9, listen to what it says happened when they got off the ark. Uh, At some point when they got off the ark, verse 18 of Genesis 9, it says that Noah, who came out of the ark, uh, with his family, verse 20, then at some point Noah began farming and he planted a vineyard and you grow grapes in a vineyard and that's what he did. And what you do with uh, grapes sometimes you make wine. And most of the time in the Bible, if not every time, uh, where you see wine, you it is alcoholic wine just by nature. And so Noah was planting a vineyard. He made wine. He was a farmer. It says he took some of the wine that he actually made, verse 21, and he drank too much. He drank of the wine and he became drunk. Noah was a believer. He loved God. He's in heaven, yet he sinned. And here he, his sin was drunkenness. Not only did he get drunk, it says he uncovered himself inside of his tent. He took off, he got naked and got inside of his tent. So there he is, passed out, drunk, laying down in his tent, totally in the raw. It's pretty graphic. Then people must have been, uh, where's, where's dad? Where's grandpa? Well, Ham, one of his sons, found out where dad was. Verse 22, Ham, the father of Canaan. So Ham, 
eventually has four sons at least, and one of those was named Canaan. Ham, the father of Canaan, went into Noah's tent, and he saw the nakedness of his father, and that he was passed out drunk. And Ham didn't do anything about it. He should have done the appropriate thing, probably covered up his father to hide his nakedness, uh, to preserve his character and the shame that he would face. But he didn't do that. So Ham un- uh, saw the nakedness of his father. He, and then he goes outside, Ham does, and he told his two brothers about it. Hey, Japheth, chef, uh, chef, guess where uh, d- dad is? He's in the, in the tent. tent. He's, he's drunk and do- he's totally naked. And just totally, what he did is he mocked his father. Not only mocked him, he did something. We don't know what that was. Verse 23, but Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it upon their shoulders, and they walked backwards with the blanket. And then they went in the tent and they covered their father's nakedness and their faces were turned away so they wouldn't see the nakedness of their father. When Noah woke from his wine, his drunkenness, he knew what his youngest son had done to him. That's significant. When he woke up, he knew that Ham did something to him. And it was shameful. And it deserved the wrath of God. So Noah pronounces a curse on Ham. And the way he curses Ham is he curses Ham's son, Canaan. Canaan would eventually become the father of the Canaanites, who would populate the land of Palestine, the land of Israel. And they were known for sexual immorality and false religion all throughout their existence, including the apex of which in the land of Canaan and the descendants of the Canaanites were Sodom and Gomorrah, according to Genesis chapter 10. And so God, through Noah, says, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. There it is, the special blessing on Shem, who become the Shemites, the Semites, the Jews. And all throughout Old Testament history, you have the Canaanites at war with the Israelites, trying to undermine everything about them, including their purity, their covenant with God. And and they were successful for the most part because when Israel went in, they were supposed to wipe out all the Canaanites because they were a blot on humanity. Part of their religion was offering their babies to their gods, which is murder, among other things. God said, wipe them out, and Israel didn't. They compromised, and, and, and as a result, the Canaanites were just a plague to Israel throughout Old Testament history. So the Canaanites, sons of Ham. Uh, Another enemy that Israel had perpetually through the Old Testament were the Philistines. Go ahead and look there. This one's important because uh, everybody would admit, I think, that's informed, that the word Palestinian, Palestine. Palestine, where's that come from? Well, the origin of it, it comes from the word Philistine. Palestine comes directly from Philistine. So if you're a Palestinian, you are a Philistine. That's what it means. I said last week that the word Palestine doesn't exist in the Bible. Unless you have a King James Bible, I think it exists one time. Oops. And then all the modern translations properly translated as, I think, the Philistines or the Phoenicians. Uh, so the Philistines, who were actually Palestinians, they were sons and descendants of Ham. They were sons of uh, Egypt as well, according to Genesis 6 through 14. So uh, that's where they came. So if you got your Bible, you look at Genesis 10. There's Shem, Ham, and Japheth, all their descendants, where the nations came from. And then uh, it says where the Philistines came from, verse uh, 6 through 14. And verse 14 says, from which came the Philistines. They came from Mizraim, which is Egypt, and also descendants of Ham, Canaan. 
point being is they're not from the blessed line, right? They're from the cursed line, the Philistines were. And so uh, the Philistines historically uh, don't quite know all the details, but we do know that the word Palestine comes from Philistine. The Philistines uh, migrated from the area of Crete. They were seafaring people. At some point in around 1200 BC, they made it over to the coast of Egypt. They tried to attack Egypt. Egypt pushed them up north. So they landed on the land of Palestine down in the south, and they were on the coast there by the Mediterranean Sea. That's where they came from. The Palestinians, the land of the Philistines, it became known as. So that when Israel came in there under the days of Moses, the Philistines were already there. The Canaanites were all throughout the land, and God uh, wanted Israel to also wipe out the Philistines and take God's property from them because they were also a despicable people with false religion, sexual immorality. They were also advanced technologically because they were experts in metallurgy, and they had chariots and swords and all kinds of implements made of metal that the Israelites coveted and even asked to purchase from them the philistines uh, became a scourge and an enemy an avowed enemy of israel starting in the book of genesis with abraham and his son isaac and they became, they came to quickly despise abraham isaac and their descendants and they were still in the land that's in 2000 bc and they're still in the land all the way to 13 or 1300 bc during the times of the judges and the days of samson that was samson's main enemy were the philistines that he was uh, fighting against the woman who deceived him delilah she was a philistine that's 1300 B.C., and then the Philistines are still in the land, and an avowed enemy of Israel in the days of Solomon and David. And David finally restrained the influence and the plague of the Philistines and put them in their place, beginning with killing the greatest of the Philistines, Goliath, the uncircumcised Philistine. So David put them in their place, but they were still around and they continued to exist in the land of Israel. As far as we know, according to historians, until about 300 B.C., when apparently out of nowhere, the Philistines went into utter total non-existence. There are no Philistines today. In other words, there are no Palestinians today, historically. To say that you're a Palestinian today is to do historical revisionism. Or at best, you are anachronistic. You have a wrong view, a twisted view, an errant view of history. And reality. Well, why are the Philistines no more? Why did they go out of existence in, say, three, four hundred B.C.? Well, because God promised they would in the book of Zephaniah, chapter two, verse five, among other places, where God basically told the Philistines, I'm going to wipe you out. And he did. So for people to say, well, we're the Palestinians. No, you're not. Or we're the Philistines. No, you're not. You're not a Philistine. The Philistines are of different lineage, stock ethnicity than modern-day Arabs. The Arabs are the ones calling themselves Philistines. Let's go on to number three. After the Canaanites, the Philistines, perpetual enemies of Israel all throughout history, even up to today, are the sons of Ishmael. I put Arabs there. Ishmael. We're going to look at chapter 16 and 21 of Genesis to see. So Abraham was going to be made a great nation. You need offspring to have a great nation. So he gave birth to a son named Isaac but also another son named Ishmael. Ishmael was the older son. Ishmael was really an illegitimate son through a mistress of Abraham. And Ishmael was the older son, the firstborn son of Abraham, but not the son of promise. But Ishmael, his mom was Egyptian, and her name was Hagar, and she wasn't even married to Abraham. So that was an illegitimate relationship. But Abraham was born, I mean, Ishmael was born nevertheless, and actually God blessed Ishmael in some ways. And then 13, 14 years later or so, uh, 
Abraham's second son, Isaac, was born through Sarah, the legitimate child of promise. But just listen to what God says about Ishmael, the first son of Abraham, the illegitimate son of Abraham. In 16, Hagar gives birth to this boy named Ishmael. And then Sarah gets jealous. I don't want Hagar and her son around here anymore. You're my husband. Get her out of here. Basically is what she said. But here's what God said. God intervened. And he wanted Hagar and Ishmael to stay there with Abraham. So, which is very gracious because one of the reasons I think is that God wanted Abraham to take care of Ishmael. That was his baby. He needs to be responsible. Provide for that child. Verse 10, the angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply, said to Hagar, the mother of Ishmael, Hagar, I know even though Sarah hates your guts, I will greatly multiply your descendants so that they will be too many to count. There are going to be so many offering. You know who the offspring of Ishmael are? They're the Arabs. Do you know that we have over 300 million Arabs today? Now, not all Arabs are bad, by the way, but I'm just, I'm just giving you the lineage. So this promise was fulfilled. Uh, descendants, so many that you can't even count them. Verse 11, the angel of the Lord said, further, behold, you are with child Ishmael. You will bear a son. You shall call him Ishmael, which means God hears because God has heard your cry because Yahweh has given heed to your affliction, Hagar. But let me tell you about your son. He will be a wild donkey of a man. That was the kind of donkey that roamed untamed in the desert where they lived. So that's that's Ishmael. He's going to be a wild donkey of a man and his descendants are going to be like crazy, wild, untamable donkeys. And his hand will be against everyone. He will be a fighter. He will be a warrior. He will have animosity towards his brethren, his half brothers. He will live to the east of his brothers. This is true of the Arabs. This is true of the descendants of Ishmael. This is true that they live to the east of the Jews because the, the, the border of the Jews was the Mediterranean. And also basically the Jordan. You live to the east, so Ishmael grows up. Now go to chapter 21. So now he's uh, Ishmael's getting older. He's a teenager now. Sarah says, okay, fine. He's a teenager now. Get him out of here. Uh, he's picking on my two-year-old son, Isaac. Uh, I want him out. This time, God says, okay, Abraham, you can let Ishmael go and Hagar. Uh, he's probably old enough now. So that's what happens. They're booted out of uh, Abram's family, Hagar the Egyptian. And then she gets to the desert, and they run out of water. And Ishmael, as a teenager, he's on the brink of dying from uh, starvation and he's about to starve to death, and he has no water. And so Hagar starts crying, and she prays, and God hears her prayer. God answers her prayer. Verse 17 of Genesis 21, what is the matter with you, Hagar? Do you not do not fear, for God has heard the voice of the lad Ishmael where he is. So this is God answering her prayer through the form of an angel. And so God says, arise, get up, uh, Hagar, lift up, lift up the boy, hold him by the hand. Get this, another promise. I will make Ishmael a great nation. There it is. With countless offspring, a great and powerful nation. Verse 20, God was with the lad. God was with Ishmael, and Ishmael grew up, and he lived in the wilderness and became an archer, and he lived in the wilderness of Paran, which is down south of Israel in the Saudi Arabia region, as well as by the Sinai Peninsula. And then he spread out from those regions, and he was a desert dweller, and that was true all throughout history of the Arabs. They were Bedouins and uh, desert dwellers and the people of the east is how they're uh, enumerated in the Bible. So this is totally true, and this is the history of Ishmael. So Ishmael was a sworn enemy of God's people. 
at this time, starting with Isaac and has been true all throughout history. The Ishmaelites have always had great animosity and a warring attitude towards the Jews and the Israelites, and that's even true today through the lineage, like I said, of the Arabs. Not all Arabs. But as a matter of fact, some Arabs hear the gospel today and believe in Jesus. So you can be a Christian Arab and love God's people and love the Jews. But by and large, as a nation and as a people, God would preserve their stock, that they would be a perpetual enemy of Israel. This will culminate, by the way, at the end of the age. By the way, if you look at a map today of Israel, around it are like 57 nations who all hate Israel, and the majority of the 57 nations are all Muslim nations. That is not a coincidence. And then in Ezekiel 38, prophecy at the end of the age, during the tribulation, when the whole world is going to come against Israel in war during the tribulation, and God literally names the nations there, Ethiopia, Put, uh, and, and every nation can be identified with a geography today. And every one of those nations mentioned in Ezekiel 38 and 39 that's going to go against war in Israel in the future today are all Muslim nations. Now, 50 years ago, evangelical Bible interpreters thought it was the Soviet Union. The Russians are the ones who are going to collapse on Israel because it was all many of those nations were part of the Soviet Union even though some of those nations were still Muslim at the time, part of the Soviet Union. Today, they're no longer a part of the Soviet Union, but they are all Muslim nations. And by and large, Arab nations. Unlike, But Persia is a Muslim nation, but not Arab. But anyway, the common denominator is they're Muslim, and today they all hate Israel. Coincidence? Or biblical prophecy, Ezekiel 30. 8 and 39. Let's go to number four. Who else uh, despised Israel through its history? Well, Esau. You can see the story in Genesis chapter 25 where uh, Rebecca, uh, Isaac and Rebecca, she was barren and Isaac prayed and God answered the prayer, Genesis 25. And God allowed Rebecca to have children. She had twins within her womb and then God made a prophecy. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. There it is, two nations. The nation of Israel and the nation of Edom, the Edomites who came from Esau. Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples will be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. They're going to be at war with one another. And that was true of Jacob and Esau their whole life. They were at odds. Got to a point when Esau got older, he just wanted to kill his brother Jacob and wipe him out, destroy him. And I, I wrote that, I put that verse down, verse Genesis 27, 41. Esau said to himself, I will kill my brother Jacob. That was satanic. That wasn't just a human inclination. That was satanic. That was a plan of Satan to use Esau to kill Jacob to wipe out the messianic line. And if that happened, none of us would be here today. So this is beyond the human and the superficial. So Esau left the area where he was, and he settled down below the Dead Sea. And he had two names. He was called Esau, but he was also called Edom. So he was the hairy red one. And then Genesis 36 talks about his descendants. He, he was a polygamist. He married many women. And get this, he married Canaanite women. Why did he do that? Because he knew his parents despised the Canaanites. And he did that to spite his parents. My parents hate Canaanites. I'm going to marry Marry a few. And he did. He also married an Ishmaelite, a, uh, an offspring of Ishmael, one of Ishmael's daughters. And her blood was primarily Egyptian from the blood of Ham, the enemy of Shem. 
And then it shows the regions where he lived. And those be, they became the Edomites. And then when Moses is going through the wilderness, the Edomites are enemies. They hate Israel. They don't want, they're not going to let Israel pass. They're sworn enemies of Israel. And they always ha, has been, the Edomites. The Edomites also had their lineage, and they birthed other offspring. And another word for Edomite is Idumean. Idumean. Edomite. Idumean. I don't know if that sounds familiar, but King Herod, King Herod, who tried to kill Jesus the Messiah at his birth, was an Idumean. He was of mixed blood, mixed stock, but he was he also had Idumean blood, Edomite blood, a descendant of Esau, the despisers of Israel. And Herod began to slaughter two-year-old baby males within the vicinity of Jerusalem to kill the Messiah. Coincidence? No. Spontaneous reaction on a human level? No. Satanically inspired? Yes. So those are the Esauites, the Edomites, the Idumeans, and the whole line of Herod, because there were offspring of Herod who just continued to attack not just the Jews and Jesus, but also the church when it began. And we saw that in Acts chapter 12, when the offspring of Herod, another Herod came along and murdered, slaughtered, killed James in the early church. Perpetual enemies of Israel. Then number five, now we get more generic. Um, Gentile, the Gentiles. That means the people of the earth. Uh, those who are non-Jewish, those who are non-Israelites are Gentiles, the Goyim. All the other nations of the world is what it means. And for the most part, throughout history, God promised or predicted that the nations of the world are going to hate you, Israel, and they are going to persecute you. They're going to even remove you from your land for a while. They will despise you. This will go on for ages. This was first predicted in Genesis 15. That it would happen for 400 years. Then he predicts it again. Out of the words of Jesus' mouth in Luke. That this is going to go on in, for a long period of time. Called, and it's called the times of the Gentiles. So look at Luke 21. The words of Jesus. So in Luke 21, Jesus is giving prophecies. And I think there's a parallel passage in Matthew 24 and 25, but not everything is parallel. Jesus gives some, or Luke gives us some new information, uh, not mentioned in Matthew, about the end of the age, actually about the future, sir. The immediate future that in 70 AD, uh, the Romans are going to come in and they're going to sack and attack Jerusalem. But beyond the Romans coming in at 70 AD, uh, Jerusalem's going to be attacked again at the end of the age. During the time of the Great Tribulation, in the words of Matthew, Jesus calls it the Great Tribulation. We believe in a Great Tribulation because Jesus talked about the Great Tribulation. Those are his words. And he said it was an unprecedented time never seen in the history of the world. That's why we know it hasn't happened yet. And it's in fulfillment of many Old Testament prophecies. And here's what Jesus says, uh, Luke 21, uh, starting at verse 20. But when you see Jerusalem, this is the future, end of the age, time of tribulation, hasn't happened yet. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that their desolation is near. There are going to be nations from all over the world are going to surround Israel. Israel is in the land. This is the future. Israel will come back to their land. They will make peace with some Gentile ruler, and they will have a fake peace for three and a half years in the land of Israel. And so because Israel is at peace in the future in their land with a covenant that they signed, they don't feel compelled to put up a whole bunch of security and walls and that kind of thing. So they're just kind of very, they're very vulnerable. That's the context here. But all of a sudden, whew, the nations of the world who hate them are going to surround Israel. 
their desolation is near, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. You better run. And those who are in the midst of the city must leave. And those who are in the country must not enter the city. So there's going to be a persecution of Israel like never seen before for three and a half years during the time of the end of the tribulation. Verse 22, because these are days of vengeance, so that all things which are written in the Old Testament shall be fulfilled. Woe to those who are pregnant. Uh, Great distress. Verse 24, and they will fall by the edge of the sword, and they will be led captive into all the nations. There it is, the Gentiles, the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. The times of the Gentiles. Uh, The times of the Gentiles was a technical phrase Jesus was using that really began in 586 B.C., when the Babylonians went in and destroyed Jerusalem and pretty much removed most of the Jews from the land, 586 B.C., and, and then Rome, uh, the Babylonians took over, and then the Greeks took over, and then the Romans took over, and pretty much since that time, Gentiles have taken over main control of the promised land, and it's been that way ever since. There's always been a remnant of the Jews there. And Jesus said, this will go on until the end of the age. So the times of the Gentiles were uh, Gentile unbelieving nations dominate the promised land and dominate the Jews underfoot. And this is pretty much 586 all the way until the end of the tribulation when Jesus finally comes to rescue them as the Messiah to planet Earth to begin the millennium. So we are in the times of the Gentiles right now. So it shouldn't be surprising that Israel continues to be in the Jews persecuted and overcome and displaced and mocked and killed and murdered and tortured and persecuted. And people are looking to wipe them out of existence, which is was the goal of the Nazis in the 1930s and 40s. Literally wipe out every Jew was their goal. And that's the goal of many nations in the Middle East right now. Push, they like to say, we want to push them into the Mediterranean Sea. That's a very oft-repeated phrase of a mantra that they have to eradicate the Jews. That is their goal. Well, why do all these nations hate Israel so much throughout history? Well, number six, who else hates Israel? Satan. Satan is real. He was a good angel when he was made by God. He sinned because of pride. God cursed him, punished him. Cast him out of his presence. He's been around ever since. He is invisible. He's an angel. He's powerful. He is a spirit. He is finite. He is limited. He can't do anything that God doesn't allow him to do. He's incorrigible. He cannot be forgiven. He will never repent. He will always be evil. He's inherently wicked. There's nothing good about him. That is Satan. He's also known as the devil, the deceiver. He is real. He hates God's people. He hates Christ. He hates the gospel. He hates the Bible. He's very intelligent. He uses the word of God. He quotes scripture. He distorts the Bible. He moves and speaks through people today and has through history. That's Satan. It's not just an idea or a concept. He is a real living entity. He is vicious. He has a, he is a goal of destroying God's people. He roams around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He is the ultimate deceiver. He will inspire the Antichrist at the end of the age to be the greatest nemesis and enemy that Israel or the world has ever known. So Satan is real. And he's behind all of this, this utter hatred toward God's precious people, the Jews. There's a lot of passages we can look at, but just by way of summary, just go to Revelation uh, chapter 12. Some people say, well, I can't understand Revelation. Well, 
God wants you to understand it. And hopefully you can understand this passage. Most of Revelation is talking about the future. I'd say chapter 6 on is all future. But every once in a while, like right here in Revelation 12, this is actually a summary of world history. And it's actually kind of a biography of the devil. So let's read it real quick. And we'll close with this. This is John the Apostle writing in the 90s AD. He's an old man. He got a revelation from God. He's predicting the future. And he gives a summary of the reality of Satan and his influence in world history and even in the future. And he had visions and dreams. And then those are interpreted. But he's using scripture sometimes from the Old Testament regarding the the dream. And so in chapter 12, verse 1, a great sign appeared in heaven. So John sees a sign. He has a vision as a prophet. And it was a woman was clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and on her head, a crown of 12 stars. Okay, there's a woman. Clothed with the sun, so there's the sun and then there's the moon. And there's 12 stars. Okay, sun, moon, 12 stars. John, he was a Jew. John, he was an apostle. John was a pastor. John was raised in the synagogue. John was trained by rabbis. John had the Old Testament. John virtually had Genesis probably memorized. And so. For John and any Jew that's reading this and in his day, they know this comes right out of the book of Genesis, chapter 37. Where Joseph had a dream about his, himself and his family, and he referred to his dad and his mom as the sun and the moon and his brothers as stars. So verse 1 is talking about Israel, the nation of Israel. Because Joseph's father was Jacob, who became Israel. Very clear. And this woman was with child. Okay, this woman, that Israel had a child. Israel was going to give birth. Israel had a descendant. This is not Mary pregnant with Jesus. This is Israel as a nation was about to give birth. She was with child and she cried out, being in labor and in pain to give birth. And so the nation of Israel brought forth Jesus, the Messiah. That's what it means. Then another sign appeared in heaven and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns. And on his heads were seven diadems. Well, who's this great red dragon? Well, it's the devil. How do we know that? Because the passage goes on to tell us it's the devil. This is Satan. Verse 4, and Satan, the devil, his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. Those are demons. And the dragon stood before the woman. Israel. At some point, Satan stood before Israel when she was pregnant, when she was about to give birth to the Messiah. And Satan's purpose was so that when she did give birth to the Messiah, Satan might devour the Messiah as a baby. That's exactly what happened with Herod. That's what it's describing. So it wasn't just Herod who was a mean, bad guy. He was satanically inspired to do the dastardly deed that he did of slaughtering all these innocent two-year-old male Jewish babies in the vicinity of Jerusalem, trying to eliminate the Messiah, a rival king. And verse 5, and she gave birth to a son. Jesus was born. He was a male child. He is the king. He's to rule all the nations. That's what Messiah means. Mashiach, the anointed one, the ruler of the world with a rod of iron. And her child, the Messiah, was caught up to God and to his throne. That's the ascension. John's giving a summary of world history. And the woman, now he's going to, now he advances us, catapults us into the future during the time of the tribulation between verse five and verse six. Then the woman, that's Israel, fled into the wilderness, will flee into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that there she would be nourished for one thousand two hundred and sixty days, which is three and a half years. And basically what John is giving us is basically a history of Satan. 
It's amazing. And there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels warring with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war. Uh, and I believe that's also in the future. So point being, it's very clear that what motivated Herod's hatred towards Jesus the Messiah, even though he was still culpable, was satanically inspired. So that's a good reminder for us. And with that, I just want to encourage you as God's people, God's children, God's saints, that if people hate you for your faith, if they mock you for being a Christian, uh, we're supposed to rejoice in that. We're not supposed to retaliate. It's actually a reminder that we actually belong to God. We are his children. We identify with him because if anybody who's persecutes you or mocks you for being a Christian, they're not really mocking you. They're mocking Christ, right? Because Jesus said, the world hates me. And as a result, the world will hate you. And Jesus said in Matthew, you rejoice. Rejoice when you are persecuted for the sake of Christ. And God will bless you as a result. So I'm just, I hope this big picture helped you to, as a lens really, to understand and interpret what is going on in our world today. It all makes sense. The Bible addresses all of these issues. And it even tells us where this is going and the future. So uh, our last sermon on what the Bible says about Israel is going to wrap it all up and it will be what the Bible says about Israel, the future of Israel. And that's going to take us all the way to Revelation 22. With that, let's go ahead and pray to our Father. Father, we thank you for this day and our time to be with God's people, the saints, to worship you, to learn from you. We trust to be blessed by you. We thank you for Scripture, that it is sufficient, it is true, it is historical, it is the living Word of God, it's food for our soul. It dictates how we should think, how we should pray, how should we should behave. And we thank you for this blessed treasure. Help us remember these important things so that we might live in a way that honors and pleases you and also that we're effective witness to the world. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.